Radioland podcast fill in all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, managing editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea, and Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. Today, we're speaking with Harmony Holiday, who is a poet, a dancer, an artist, and she's the author of a new collection called Hollywood Forever. Which I really, really enjoyed. This was a really fun, interesting, kind of collage aesthetic collection of poetry that gave us a lot to think about this week. Yeah, yeah, she's a very accomplished woman and really great to talk to. Unfortunately, I wasn't there for the actual interview, but I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, so let's listen. Today we're talking with Harmony Holiday. Harmony Holiday is a poet and a choreographer and the creator of Miss Science, a collective that supplies artists with a platform to re-engage with their bodies and the physical elements while they escape the various digital portals of today. In 2011, her book Negro League Baseball was awarded the Fence Books Motherwell Prize, and in 2013, Ricochet Editions published a book of her poems, essays, and letters called Go Find Your Father, A Famous Blues. Her new book, Hollywood Forever, was just published by Fence in 2017. Holiday, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We're thinking you could start by reading from the new collection. Yeah, I'm going to read a poem called Medicine for Soft Times. And should I describe a little bit how it's set on an image of a boy at Martin Luther King's funeral? And beneath that, there is the index from an herb book just talking about things like cactus and cow hoof, cupping, dandelion, deer tongue, things like that. So anyways, this is called Medicine for Soft Times. Turns out all my heroes beat their wives, how redundant. And my anti-heroes shove them into the footwork like diabetic soldiers. My circulation craves the wine of I told you so, but I'm uncoerced and free to shudder all the levels of mistress all over the courtships. Ships have always been difficult for us and the water they lean on, the Atlantic be tossing in its own nightmares. And what's all the fuss about the love of boys who could have been men? Imagine if we beat them too, they could have been dancing then. And there is no weakness associated with this, just excellent nostalgia, the almost French kind of limelight glimmer and gray corridor of shiny niggas, how that word binds itself to hope in my every nursery. Does the sign really say service meat? Is there a dimension of cannibal that we cannot yet see, but as blood is to beauty? Daft patches of dimes in the Irish, Iris, shyest dancer, actually the boldest when the lights blur, wise and wise, first Mary Baraka died, then my grandfather, then Bobby Womack, then Horace Silver, Prince Rogers, Nelson Mandela, Ali, Dr. Sabi, Bobby Hutcherson, all love, all leading men, then the land, then the fantasy of the land, then the lamb and the hybrid Jesus idea, then the idea itself, wide as that belt they would whip out, Wide as we could ever spread our perfect legs, rough as the empty tire swing in my inkling of home with my other king and my other king, I think suffering finally is the only joke. The thing my incident woke up to, another black comedian with a gun and a loose child, this one adopted, this one Napoleon, this one with a time fetish, this one with a couple of drums locked in the basement, this one who loves to wait for the night to strike its most intimate dice pose and clap for it alone till it flattens into morning. Thank you. So you started by telling us how that poem was laid out. Maybe you could explain just for listeners who haven't seen the book, what you mean by how it's laid out and what's, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a book, a book of poems quite 
laid out like this before. So maybe you could just tell us how the book is, what the concept behind it is. Cool. Yeah, I wanted to access that vintage jet or Ebony Johnson publishing aesthetic where black people were just getting into the middle class. And so black tabloids, you know, we could finally think about frivolous things, but pack it with things that weren't exactly that frivolous and sort of also use that aesthetic to collapse different time signatures. So the 60s, you know, antebellum era now and to all to use that to sort of put those things in one space. It is sort of scaffolded by this notice that is a real piece of ephemera from when race records were just starting. And it says, help save the youth of America, don't buy Negro records. And it's from the New Orleans Citizens Council. So there's that sort of running through the book in different iterations and then different screenshots and pictures. One guy holding up a sign that says twerk for justice at a protest. Just like everything from the zany to the serious. Right. And the um, poems are really sometimes they're almost obscured by the yeah, image that's underneath. Exactly. So I was trying to sort of create a collective improvisation between the archival material and the poems and illustrate how it's been feeling to be writing with the sort of conceit of the internet always in your face and always sort of invading consciousness as you're trying to get work done, whether it be with an ad or some stupid Twitter notification or some not so stupid notification and how that's sort of affecting language. And especially I think for marginalized populations, the kinds of things that we feel we're allowed to write or maybe like the lack of a carefree spirit when you're constantly being confronted by sort of this weird, sometimes phony political fervor. So, yeah. So you had said that you kind of want to collapse these differences between the past and the present. Mm -hmm. And I think the collection as a kind of the collage aesthetic that you use actually works really well to do that. I mean, there's this wonderful poem called The Attempted Lynching of Jasmine Richards, in which the text is talking about Jasmine Richards, who was charged with felony lynching for trying to protect a fellow protester from police violence. And then you overlay that with this image of the FBI wanted poster for Angela Davis, mm -hmm. right? And then that itself is layered over with Davis's own discussion of how if the Black Panther Party had existed in 2014, they would have been on the quote-unquote receiving end of the war on terror. I mean, so what does this mean for you as like a poet, this kind of collapsing, and then also in terms of representing maybe like a long historical continuum of marginalized experience? That's a great question. <laughs> as a poet, it sort of... It's exactly, I guess, where my language is starting to be located okay. because I don't feel like I can get out of it. Like I've been trying to figure out a way to sort of, I talk a lot about myth, like you mentioned in the intro, mm. to sort of access a black myth or to create a new myth that would bring black consciousness out of this constant sense of struggle. But I've realized that the only way to do that is to collapse all of these heinous things that keep happening or mm. to have that conversation and then to maybe transcend it with language and to work to have language like work me out of it yeah also just to i wanted to give the reader access to the dailiness of that experience like jasmine richards for example mm. i'm friends with her on facebook and i went down to the lapd headquarters downtown last summer when they were holding up to protest you know yet another person who was killed and there was no trial no indictment and they were there for almost two months you know and they got a lot of celebrity attention. Beyonce's mom went down there, all that. And that put her more under fire. So today, just last night, she wrote like, hey, pray for me. I'm going to check in for my felony lynching case. So this isn't over. So the idea that like there's this history 
is overlaid on. Angela Davis is still talking in 2014 about the same thing right. and is actually also happening in daily lives. I feel like poetry is a way to sort of elevate a daily experience so mm -hmm. that people will pay attention to it when they don't, when they're just busy browsing in their everyday. You know, you can sort of market in time. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I love about your treatment of <laughs> historical figures, so also history, and it was in the poem that you just read, actually, Meditation for Soft Times. I love that opening line that turns out all of my heroes beat their wives, mm -hmm. right? A lot of what's going on in the collection, it seems, is recuperating not the figures themselves, but their full humanity, right? So you yeah. oftentimes talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with his mistress, right? And the yeah. mistress is a recurring figure, yeah. right? Or your own father, right? And mm -hmm. what Jimmy taught me, mm -hmm. right? So kind of what's going on with that, like, returning to their full humanity, these kind of, like, very iconic celebrity mm -hmm. figures? I think part of it was in order for people, especially, like, these Black, like, sort of minstrelized celebrity figures who we don't think of as minstrelized. We think, oh, you know, they've made it out. Actually, <laughs> mm. you know, we just see with the new Jay-Z video where he's calling himself Sambo, basically, like a modern version of a black Sambo, that there's always a consciousness that you're somehow vulgarizing your identity in order to make it out in quotation marks, mm. you know. So I guess that's part of what I was trying to do is reclaim some of the vulgarity of, you know, because white men get to be vulgar publicly, and yeah. still be the president. <laughs> but Martin Luther King, you know, was threatened with assassination when he had a mistress right. under all the pressure he was under and scrutiny. You know, he had the flaws of any man. And that should be, we should be able to have full narratives and full psychologies and not have to, you know, I think what drives a lot of people crazy under those circumstances or breaks up a lot of people's families and senses of identity is the fact that they have to put on such a front, you know. It also makes it impossible for anybody else to be that person, exactly, right? It makes yeah. them, like, dangerously exactly. singular. Exactly. Right? And so it's, like, also, yeah, wanting to well, say, like, you know, you don't have to be the sanctimonious preacher to also mobilize the people. Yeah, that brings me to the title of the collection, mm. you know, Hollywood Forever, and I was... I love this line or this part of a poem where you write, we call on Hollywood as a vector towards the recentralizing of the imaginary as a space of victory and sorrow for the lost black hero who is villain, who is star, whose archives are lost or unlisted. And I just thought that kind of gets at what we're talking about mm -hmm. is that the hero, anti-hero is a big recurring thing that you portray in the mm -hmm. collection. So I was wondering what Hollywood, what in the invoking of Hollywood in this, in the context of this collection means for you and, you know, I think you're from L.A. Yeah. Grew up here. I was raised here. Okay. Yeah. So, and then maybe as a Los Angelino, what, you know, what does Hollywood mean for you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of different things. Well, Hollywood Forever is a cemetery here. So right. that's part of it. And that was kind of invoking that, but not really, just sort of in a distant echo. And then I think Hollywood is a place where my dad, being from the South as a sharecropper with no education, was able to come and work with Ray Charles and work his way into a different, you know, a completely different reality, but one that I think also kind of drove him mad ultimately. And a lot of the black men that were around him at that time, he was like, he knew OJ and he knew. So I was looking at like, sort of, especially with all the OJ stuff that kept coming out last year, at mm, my right. own roots and how they sort of relate to that Hollywood ending in a way. Then um, who was your father? Tell us. My father was just a songwriter and a singer. He sung like some Northern Soul for New Orleans small labels. And then he worked his way 
to Chicago and then to LA and ended up writing a lot of songs for Ray Charles. He wrote a song called Put a Little Love in Your Heart and some other stuff. And he appears several times in the collection, right? Yeah. And as do fathers more generally. Yeah. Which also made me think too, I, you know, it's like, do we ever really know our parents more generally, but specifically our fathers? Yeah. Or are um, we constantly discovering them? And were you discovering him in new ways by writing about him? Definitely. I think not only our biological fathers, but also the people. Sure. Mentors. Who, yeah, yeah. The patrons of our culture and stuff like that. Like, I think it helps to really understand their motives sometimes as opposed to just always looking at their actions as some sort of, you know, isolated. Because I think that tends to happen even not just with, like I said, biological fathers, but also with heroes. We look at them like children, look at their fathers in a mm-hmm. way like, you're supposed to be perfect right. and home at five. and Without any yeah. nuance or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's been the thing with the Bill Cosby. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that there's that like headline with the America's father. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know that he was so many people's ideal of the perfect father. Yeah. And now he's exactly fallen from that image. Yeah. Just to go back to the way the book is laid out, I wonder, how did you put together, did you write the poem and then find the image? Were you working simultaneously on both? And were you looking at just art, any art in particular? Because I kind of thought of like Lorna Simpson or Ellen Gallagher who used this kind of imagery Mm -hmm. and reappropriate it. Yeah, it was sort of a mix. I was kind of improvising all of it. Like I started collecting the archives, not really knowing why, and then sort of realized that I needed to make a book like this and then went in in design and started improvising it. Oh, really? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to start where I did with MLK. Like that was sort of the sounding call or whatever. And then from there, I just started like building it, I guess. So and it was more fun that way because if I had tried to overthink it, I don't think it would have ended up coming together, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was just such a weird thing to want to do anyways if I had questioned it or like been too deliberate. Mm. I might have just backed out of it and like, mm. I can't do this. Yeah. It's not what books of poetry look like. Right. You know? Yeah. So um, did you find yourself writing towards certain images? Or? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than with other books I found. Yeah. I had to like be in the conceit fully. I, so I didn't feel the liberty to just like write a random poem and put it in as much as I, you know, normally would. Maybe. Mm. Interesting. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We are coming to you from the Los Angeles Times Book Festival, and we have Garth Greenwell here, author of What Belongs to You, a fantastic novel that came out last year. And he is here to give us a book recommendation. Garth, what would you like to recommend? So I want to recommend a book of nonfiction, which I think is the most beautiful book I have read for many, many months. And it's the new book by Yoon Lee, and it's called Dear Friend, From My Life I Write to You in Your Life. And it's kind of an astonishing book of essays that are about lots of things. I mean, they're about sort of her relationship with her mother, about her own struggles with depression and mental illness. But I think what's so moving about it, and it's, uh, it's about books. It's a book about books. And I think what's so moving about it is I'm not sure I can easily think of another book that so much seems to me like here is someone using 
all of her reading to think about her life and all of her life to think about her reading. And I think it's, it's one of the most beautiful sort of examples I know of kind of why reading is essential, you know, why reading is central to a life and what the work that books and that a deep engagement with literature can do. Wow, that is quite a recommendation. It is a fantastic collection of essays. I have heard that. Would you say the title again and the author? So the author is Yiyun Lee, and the title is Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. Thank you, Garth. That was Garth Greenwell giving us a book recommendation. He is the author of What Belongs to You. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our conversation with Harmony Holiday, author of Hollywood Forever. You know, it strikes me also that a lot of the collection, both because of the way that you created it, this kind of improvisational style allows us to see new connections um, and things that we maybe hadn't thought about or kind of trans-historical narratives that we hadn't really thought about or recognized in quite the same way. Um, but you also have this moment where you talk about, uh, I think the line is something like, tradition is not what we think it is, mm-hmm. or tradition isn't what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. And then you never say really what tradition then is. Yeah. So, like, what what <laughs> is tradition for you? Or, like, how are you thinking about tradition both as kind of um, somebody who's politically conscious, but also somebody who's working in a multimedia form mm-hmm. of poetry? Um, well, in that poem that I think you're referencing I also there's like a litany that sort of vaguely alludes to like the tradition of leaders in the sun with their killers and things like that so I don't exactly define it but I guess what I'm kind of talking about is tradition is these other seedier you know more complicated things where people are veering and people have private lives where they're enacting the tradition that we don't ever really talk about that is actual tradition you know um Affairs are a tradition and assassinations are a tradition. And, right. you know, black, you know, violence against black bodies is a tradition. And, you know, the institution of marriage and the giving a speech on a podium, these, you know, there's a lot of empty stuff that we put in the place of real conversations, I guess. Okay. Um, whereas you're directing our gaze towards traditions that are actually moving forces on the ground. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That are like really the tradition behind the tradition. Yeah, the surreptitious stuff that just gets, you know, never parsed because we don't Well, because people think it. of it as a deviation as yeah. opposed to the norm. Uh yeah. so it's not so we don't explore, oh this, yeah, yeah. Our history of actually, killing, what why, you know, it's it's always supposed to be Oh, that's not that's yeah. not who we are. That just happened. That was but, an isolated incident. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that happened exactly. a couple times a week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Right. So like um and how, where did you find a lot of this material? Uh, I've read somewhere that well, a description of you as being an archivist. Is that has is that something you've done in the past? Mm-hmm. Well, Myth Science, um, more literally, what it really started as is just a collection of jazz poetry LPs and um, people recording themselves reading poetry, like Amiri Bracca and Langston Hughes and Kenneth Rex Roth, and you know the whole tradition of that another tradition that we don't talk about of mm. just people making records. And so I have been building a whole archive of that and planning to open up a space for that. So I was doing that archiving and then it got me into other modes of looking at visual stuff. But a lot of it's just from the internet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <Is> it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Just like screenshots and, you know, 
shenanigans. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's really interesting that I never I didn't make the connection of this of the layout with the internet, but oh, it's such yeah. a it's such an obvious. That's good though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean now, but you say it, and it's such a revelation. Um, yeah. Do you? Like, are you someone, since you, you know, are kind of multimedia artist in a way, do you work a lot with, you know, lots of images on mm -hmm. the screen? Are you have lots of browsers open? Do you, do you have to, or do you have to try to shut that out? Or does that, does that feed you? I definitely have lots of browsers open. Yeah. To the point <laughs> where my computer is like, there's no more memory until you close some windows. Like, <laughs> calm down. Oh, really? Yeah. I definitely... Yeah, work. I guess I consider it improvising. Like it's sort of, you know, looking at all the things. I'm Because my interests are also so disparate um, that I'll be researching like health and, you know, deep into learning about one herb and then also like trying to get to some Haitian dance research and then trying to do jazz research and then reading poetry. So I try to maintain all that you know juggle all that in my consciousness like in a in an active way so that it informs the writing i guess and mm -hmm. so i kind of need it in a way as a sort of like cognitive that must be really exhausting <laughs> i mean i i just imagine the kind of like when you're working it's hard enough just to work with text mm -hmm. right and like you're layering both like text and image but also internet search tweet yeah. like archival materials new materials like i i mean at a certain point, do you just go with the process or like, you know, I mean, how does that work for you on like a day-to-day -day kind of process way? Um, I think I try not to separate it in my head, I guess. That's the only way I, it can function. So sense. you are thinking them all together. I think of it like as the like interrelation thing. Like this is how I relate to my identity and also just okay. like maybe being an artist, even though that word, you know whatever. <laughs> I think someone, it applies in this case. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seems fair. So yeah, I just try to not not get overwhelmed by like, how am I going to bring all this together? Because otherwise, I, yeah, it would be exhausting. Yeah, can you talk about, so in some ways, you know, you're talking about improvisation. There's definitely a jazz feel. I mean, there's also lots of jazz figures within the collection. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I liked are these kind of recurring motifs, right? So one would be the figure of the mistress. There's also Miles Davis, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and then you kind of have also this, um, the, I think it's on the just in, after the cover, where it's a, an old, I guess you would call this a PSA or a, or a warning advertisement about uh, sent out by white supremacists mm. saying, you oh, know, yeah. don't listen to these quote-unquote Negro records, yeah. right? Call your radio stations, protect your children. Like that appear, that image itself appears several times throughout the collection. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about like how you arrange the motifs? Like if there is kind of a like a patterned, um, kind of deployment of them and how they're functioning for you within that poetry? Um, the motifs, like, you mean the... Yeah, for, just the, the repeated images or the figures. Yeah, I guess sort of kind of as I see them relating to one another okay. in a sense. And I wanted to bring that as something recurring because I feel like it's sort of, I think, I don't know if you guys know the jazz artist Rasan Roland Kirk but mm -hmm. he has a great song about the missing black notes. And it's sort of, it's funny because mm. I have an audio version of this where I quote that, but um, it goes, it's about like, you know, 
discovering some missing black notes and the language kind of mimics the language of that notice, but in a more okay. um, protective way. Like he's saying, you know, the missing black notes have been stolen. Like don't give out, like don't give these people these records to listen to that kind of idea. So oh, it was I sort see. of like, a. Oh wow. I was thinking about the back and forth between that and That's thinking really a lot about how privacy and seclusion and alienation and those things, like how there's a sort of reciprocal relationship that isn't fully fleshed out, even in my own head about, you know, not wanting, you know, some of the Samboing is just to get privacy. Like I know that my dad, as a person who had charisma, or even like Miles Davis, you can use your charisma as a weapon against invasive scrutiny, you know? Oh, as a way to protect yourself. As, Absolutely. Yeah. It's so, the persona that you project exactly, out to the world. Even when you look at like someone like James Baldwin, who had very Hollywood mannerisms, we all know that in his private life, you know, private life is so different. So you're able to turn that on so that you can have a private identity so that you can have moments of just solitude and you know, non-theatrical. Do you think that's as possible anymore? Because if I think about some of the people that you're talking about, yeah. so James Baldwin, um, you know, you had also talked about, obviously, Martin Luther King, like mm -hmm. these people, Kanye, that, Kanye yeah. right? <laughs> right? That, well, Kanye is an interesting example, <laughs> know, right? Because I wonder if there life, is yeah. this erosion of the kind, you know, as you're talking about yeah. your, your father being able to both, like, put out this persona that the world expects mm -hmm. and which, like, also allows him to protect the private, yeah. you know, person. I wonder, does that exist anymore and with the kind of um, social media penetration mm -hmm. and how our private lives are now publicized in a way that also makes our private lives no longer ours in a very yeah. troubling way? So, like, how do you think about that just more generally culturally, but also for yourself as, yeah. as a multimedia artist? Mm -hmm. I think in a way that's exactly why this felt so urgent to do okay. now because I do feel like I was getting the sense of something falling out from under the culture, the American culture as a whole, obviously, because where we are right now. Yeah. But then specifically black culture, even with like, yeah, Yeezy going to the insane asylum or it's just things that are happening where the vulgarization is so coveted in a way, like people now love those same stories that might have, you know, been censored before and things like that. Mm. And yeah, I don't think people respect their own privacy as much, obviously, because it's everything is such a tool you know everything is such a commodity every you know a scandal is a commodity for people so people don't protecting it is actually a liability now in a sense um in a way that it wasn't before it feels that way at least i wondered um, i mean do you see that as like a, in some ways, I could see how in your collection that would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Both we're we're enabling the vulgar to be part of the public image, yeah. But also, in some ways, it could also leave particular kinds of people very vulnerable, yeah. right, to exploitation, commodification, those kind of things. Definitely that, and I think for naive or like more innocent spirits, it sort of creates this idea that I don't know. I feel like. Some Kanye keeps coming to mind because I think people can end up feeling trapped in a sort of need to perform sure. um, that vulgar that, you know, there's just, I think people's consciousness isn't ready for it. So I think whereas before people might have been able to do that with a kind of dignity, now somehow, I don't know, I think people have just fallen. I think the intelligence level has fallen. Mm. The level of self-knowledge of self and self-awareness has fallen. And so that becomes more dangerous now yeah. somehow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know.
I I um, appreciated this part. I think it's the poem um, Stevie Wonder still mm-hmm. is Stevie Wonder still alive? Is that you, Stevie Wonder still alive? Uh, where you write about a blues sensibility, mm-hmm. and um, that to me seemed like such a sane description for how to move forward mm-hmm. um, for everyone. But so I wonder if you could just maybe describe. Uh, what you wrote a little bit and Mm -hmm. say if that's a personal um, kind of way that you approach, you know, the world and the news that comes up or... It definitely is. Um, Yeah, I think lyricizing, um, you know, tragedy or, you know, tragedy, comedic events is is the only way to deal with them at this point. Um, for a lot of people, you know, and not just lyricizing with words, but, you know, with image or with how you think about them or associatively, like where you place them. Um, yeah, I think it's like a so coping is, mechanism. Is that sure. a tradition you feel that you're working in? Yeah, definitely. The blues. Well, th- yeah, that's what I was going to say. You have that great line about the blues tradition being like an autobiography expressed lyrically, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the autobiography of a catastrophe yeah. expressed, expressed lyrically, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, do you also feel that in some way, all these poems are about other people, but is this your blues in that sense? Is this your kind of autobiography guess, expressed yeah. lyrically? In a sense, yes, or um, other people's too, you know, but, but yeah, it's things that I think we should lament, but don't take the time to, in a sense. And if you don't, with anything, it's like, if you don't mourn, you don't get past it, or you, you know, like Baldwin says, you can't change anything you can't face. So Mm. I think that was the goal here. It's like, I just don't want to feel stigmatized by whatever this onus is that I'm feeling is coming up now. Um, so it was a way of facing it through past things, you know? Mm. Yeah. I guess it's like if we felt this impending political climate, you know, how do we like shield ourselves or, you know, what kind of armor can we put on that we, ha- we have access to through history? I mean, as you're, as you're writing... In some ways, I feel like this is the question we're all asking ourselves, right? It's like, has your writing changed or your art? Because you're not just a writer, obviously, but like, has your art um, changed after the election? I feel like leading up, like, I made this last summer and I was feeling this like super frustrated sense of not being able to write um, fantasy not that I want to write fantasy or anything like that, but just not feeling like I can write about flowers, you know, like feeling like having to comment or having to somehow sure. be engaged. And then also feeling like, but this isn't my history. This isn't my problem. This is someone else's problem. You know, like mm. why should I have to be dealing with these other people's problems? Like this isn't even my stuff. <laughs> like I didn't even make this, you know, and not just when I say I, I mean like we, there's a lot of us who just shouldn't have to, claim this dilemma because like we were pawns in it not the perpetrators of it you know yeah and so now that i did this this was sort of my way of like getting back to feeling like i can write 
I don't know, like more liberated from just like the political climate because mm-hmm. I feel like last summer I was definitely feeling trapped or something, you know, in a responsibility. It's like um, Langston Hughes has that essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain yeah, that he exactly. wrote in 1924. And it's like, damn, I'm still feeling that same, like, you know, and I don't even, you know, I wouldn't say I'm not a black artist. I'm an artist. I just don't think there's a way to say that now, but you know, I know that I'm a black artist or that that's what I'm going to be known as. And so then there's this whole, like, you know, if people are getting shot down, if bodies are, you know, it's just complicated, I guess. It's like, and there's also a lot of paranoia circulating through all communities, um, definitely through the black community that sure. sort of can seep into the writing and all sorts of art practice in weird ways. Um what, what kind of stuff are you working on now? If you don't, I, yeah. I know that you've just recently, <laughs> this book has very recently come out, so you're not immediately expected to be jumping on something, but what kind of stuff I'm, are you working on now? I'm working on a lot of different stuff, but um, so I'm turning this book into like a ballet. So I'm working on wow. that, like choreographing. Since it's in five segments, I'm doing like just five dances because I made an audio version of it that's on iTunes. And so I'm sort of dancing to different archival sound that relates to the book. And I'll perform that in Hudson. When will that hopefully, be? Hopefully um, in mid-August. Um, oh, like so coming up. Okay. Yeah, okay. be soon. And I'm working on a biography of Abby Lincoln, the jazz singer. Oh, um, right. Who comes up in one of the, in the modes at the end. Yeah. Um, so that's fun. And then I'm working on a book about um, sort of about reparations and the body um, through the uh, lens of a black woman. I'm finally... I think I've written so much about the masculine black identity. I finally want to just write about uh, women. So I'm writing about a woman who reincarnates through time and different things that happen to her body. That sounds that fascinating. Great. That sounds great. Be fun. Well, we'll look forward to all of that. Um, cool. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Harmony Holiday, author of Hollywood Forever. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 